Whatever did happen to that good-looking bass player anyway? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Apparently, you gotta you gotta have been to Hawaii to be a guitar player in this church. But uh, anyway, good morning. I hope you came uh, hungry to hear from the Lord Jesus through His Word this morning, because that's what we're 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 going to do here for the next few minutes. Uh, and if you'd find your way with me over to First Corinthians chapter fourteen, and and as you do, let me remind you. Uh, of the problem that Paul is addressing here where we are in the text. Uh, ran across a song here that I think would have been pretty popular in Corinth. It's a little more current than that. But the chorus goes something like this. Are you ready? I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. What I think, what I like, what I know what I want, what I see. I want to talk about me. Okay, the guy singing that song has what's known as an eye problem. He is the measure and the center and the focus of his life. And that essentially is the root of all of the issues that you have in, in, as problems in Corinth. They weren't so much a church as they were a gathering of individuals, a big percentage of whom were concerned all about the my, me, my, and very little concerned about the good of the body as a whole. And therefore, when it came to to the exercise of spiritual gifts, the ones the Corinthians really liked were the ones that shined a spotlight on my favorite person, me. And, and, and the, particularly the gift of tongues was something they used as a way of, of hanging out a big billboard that said, pay attention to me because I am important. And it was a great gift for them because they, uh, they felt, look, this combines obvious supernatural endowment with being unintelligible to the vast majority of listeners for the ultimate in selfish spiritual superiority, and they used it for that purpose, to draw a line between the elite, who were the tongues-speaking spiritual folk, they believed, and the, you know, the, the more general run of common people, you know, you peons down here, right? And, uh, and this, as you may imagine, was just about as arrogant and divisive and unloving, you name it, as you can imagine. And it is splitting apart the church. And so Paul has already devoted chapter uh, 12 and chapter 13 to correction of all of this mess. And in chapter 12, he's talking, he's giving them theology, and he's talking to them about how every person in the body of Christ is part of the body and has significance and has value and that we ought not be so quickly willing to sacrifice those people that we think of as less gifted or even as unnecessary to the overall functioning because who wants to give up part of their body? Sign up if you'd like to have amputations. We'll do them out in the hall. Got a big set of shears. We'll just make it happen, right? No, Nobody wants to do that, right? Why? Because when you are missing part of your body, there aren't any extra pieces that you'd like to live without. Even your appendix has some function, 
And there aren't any pieces you'd like to live out without. And if you are without any one of them, you are handicapped to a greater or lesser degree. And so that's chapter 12. Chapter 13 that we looked at last week uh, is about how God intends, because he loves us perfectly, for us to love one another like he loves us. And so we looked at the love of Christ as Paul describes it and uh, how, how without the love of Christ being shown in the body of Christ, that none of what we are, none of what we have, none of what we accomplish is of any eternal value apart from love for one another, which is lacking severely in the Corinthian church. And so now in chapter 14, he's going to show us how not to focus on self, but on the needs of the larger body of Christ, of each of which each of us are just one little part. So I hope I hope I've given you enough introduction to be able to find that. First Corinthians 14. Uh, we're going to look at the first uh, 12 verses. We're going to spend about three weeks in uh, in First Corinthians 14. Uh, this is the this is the first part of it here. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, uh, Paul is making a transition. You know, he's just defined for us, spent all of chapter 13 talking about what love is. And so now he's going to zero in on what it looks like when it comes to using your spiritual gifts. That's what chapter 14 is essentially about. How do you apply what he said about love and what he said about the body to actually using your gifts in worship? And since tongues is the big issue, uh, he is going to spend a lot of time addressing tongues uh, by way of illustrating the principles he's giving us. So he starts off in verse 1 with two commands. Number one, to pursue love. In other words, the kind of love I've just described to you is something you need to pursue. Something that needs to be, because the reality of it is, is that it is a lifelong pursuit. It's something that we don't attain to perfectly in this life, but nevertheless, that we do grow. Amen? Or at least, we're supposed to. If we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there ought to be progress in our spiritual life. We ought not be, as one wag put it, an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. We ought to have growth. We ought not just have the most exciting part of our Christian life be the part where we came to Christ and we haven't hit a lick since. There's to be growth. There's to be progress. And Paul says, pursue, therefore, love. That there ought to be growth in that. That we ought to be less selfish next year than we are this year. And so pursue that. And he says then the next command is this. To earnestly desire 
spiritual gifts, especially, he says, the gift of prophecy. Now, this tells us a couple of important things. Number one, it tells us that it is possible to both pray for and then to receive additional spiritual gifts. Otherwise, he would not tell us to earnestly seek additional gifts, right? It doesn't make sense to tell people to earnestly pursue something they are not ever going to get. And he says, earnestly desire spirit, you know, additional spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Uh, and it also tells us that Paul thinks that there are some gifts that are better suited to the upbuilding of the church than to others, and prophecy is one of those gifts. Prophecy here, I think, refers to speaking revelation from God. And some commentators would go ahead and loop in preaching and teaching into the definition. I'm not sure if that's precisely accurate or not, although some commentators feel that that is part of what is in view here. But, but it is true, this is true, that all of the Bible's prophets were preachers and teachers. All of them. If you look at Moses, he preaches and teaches to the people of Israel. If you look at uh, David, he writes part of the scriptures. He is preaching and teaching, even though he's doing it sometimes in song. If you look at uh, Isaiah or Micah or Amos or Joel or Obadiah or Jonah, what are these guys? They are preachers and they are teachers. When Jesus comes, what does he do? He goes through the countryside preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God is among you and telling what it's about and how to be part of it, right? And when Paul goes out to do mission work, what does he do? He preaches and teaches all every place he goes, okay? So it's true that every person who is a preacher and teacher, uh, that, that every person who is a prophet is a preacher and a teacher. I'm not sure that every preacher and teacher is therefore imbued, imbued with the gift of prophecy. Okay, so kind of like all, all catchers are baseball players, and I don't think all baseball players are catchers, therefore. All right, does that make sense? Um, but the reason that prophecy is superior to tongues is that people grow up by hearing and obeying the word of God, which is what prophecy supplies. Everything in this book came through the prophets. First five books come through Moses, and you've got Joshua and Judges and Ruth. Uh, you've got Kings and Chronicles and Job and all the wisdom books that are, and all of the prophetic books are all come about through the prophets. The apostles were all prophets. The word of God is what is given to us that we might be built up and might grow. And so Paul says the, that Prophecy is superior to tongues because it supplies what we need in order to grow. And on top of that, um, by contrast, if you look at verse 2, the person who speaks in a tongue is speaking in a language that he himself does not know and which would be unknown to most, if not all, of his hearers. And so God understands what the guy is saying because God gave languages to start with. And so God understands what the fellow is saying, but most, if not all, of his hearers 
uh, would understand, uh, would be totally confused by it. So again, I think that tongues, if you look at Acts chapter 2 where it appears for the first time, what you see there is a variety of people, both men and women, speaking in languages they have not learned for evangelistic purposes. But as an example, let's say that I am an English speaker and I go to Beijing, where they speak Mandarin, and I start spouting off about the glory of God and the majesty of Christ crucified and raised from the dead, what are they all going to say to me? What? That's what they're going to say, right? Because I'm speaking a language that none of them know, or at least a big portion of them will not know. Uh, some of them might know English, but they're not going to be able to praise God along with me if I'm using a language they do not know. If I start speaking Spanish at my church in Berlin, it's not going to do my congregation a lot of good. And so it doesn't accomplish much other than to say, hey, look at me and look at my fantastic gift. And he says, look, you're speaking not to men but to God because nobody understands you. You're speaking mysteries in the spirit. Uh, you are given the ability to speak in a language you haven't learned for evangelistic purposes, but within the church it doesn't accomplish a lot. The man who prophesies, though, verse 3, is speaking for three reasons. He's speaking for other people's upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And I want you to look at those three words. Uh, upbuilding is a word that means edification. It means helping people grow in maturity. And the word encouragement here, as it's translated in the ESV, translates the Greek word paraklesis which is related to the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Remember, he says, when I will send the Holy Spirit to you and the paraclete, the comforter, will come. And it's, it's a word that, that, that has to do with both comfort as well as exhortation, as well as spurring people on. Y'all know what spurs are, right? little pointy thing that you wear if you're horseback riding to make the horse go, right? That, that in a sense, the part of the function of the Holy Spirit is to be the spur on us. We're the horse in that example, in case you're confused. All right. Um, and it's the word for assurance and for comfort. And then the word translated consolation here has to do with uh, those who are in grief or those who are suffering. And these are the things that God's word does in the lives of those people who receive it. Amen? We get both edification and growth and maturity. We get exhortation and prodding from the spirit. And we get comfort when we're in grief, when we're in pain. When I'm in pain, when life is falling down around me, I want to open up my Bible. When I've been in the greatest pain in my life, I can tell you I didn't miss very many quiet times. Amen? When things get tough, I want to hear from God, and I want to know that He is at the stick on my life, and that He is sovereign, and that on top of that, that He loves me, and that whatever I'm going through is not proof that He is somehow on leave, but that He is there, and He loves me, and this is temporary, and He's going to bring me through. 
that his steadfast love is going to remain. Amen? Those are the gifts of the word of God that come about through the prophet. Now, if you look at verse 4, he says, The one who speaks in a tongue, compared to the guy who prophesies, he, he builds up himself. In other words, he is really blessed as he does this. I have never spoken in tongues, but I cannot imagine what it must be like to be in an evangelistic context among people you, you don't know their language, and all of a sudden be able to start preaching God's word to them. I would love that ability. I think that would be tremendous. And I, and I have to Im- imagine that it would also be a severe temptation if you had that ability to want to show it off a little when you got back. Hey, look what I can do. <laughs> right? Look what I can do. You can't believe this. I've never, I've never studied a lick of German in my life, and now I sprechen sie Deutsch. <laughs> right? This is cool. But it is really encouraging for you. To everybody else, it's just confusing. Nobody else can praise God along with you for what you're saying. Let me give you an example. The Yakate Tain Agapain, Zelute De. Ta numatica malan de hina profutete. Hagar la lone glace uk anthropois la le ala theu. Udes gar acue numati de la le musteria. Now, aren't you all blessed? That is the first two verses of this chapter in Greek, in the original Greek as it was written by Paul. Aren't you all edified? Well, surely you are now after I told you what language it was, right? It's the, it's the language that God gave it in. God understood what I said, and you just weren't spiritual enough to get it. No, that isn't it, is it? Um, what you need to be blessed by that is for someone to interpret. And that's what Paul says is needed in verse 5. It would be great if everybody spoke in tongues. But then, because then there would be absolutely no reason we can't go to every corner of the globe and share the gospel in people's heart language. It would make mission a lot easier, amen? But speaking in tongues doesn't help your fellow believers in your own church quite so much unless you interpret what you have said to them. Then both people can... can understand and obey God's word just as they do the prophets. Prophecy is superior, therefore, because it uses the language of the people to whom it is given that they might be encouraged and built up in their faith. So that I can look at the Greek as an example, and I can read, Pursue love, and zealously, earnestly desire uh, the spiritual gifts and especially in order that you might prophesy. For the one who is speaking in a tongue is not speaking to men, but speaking to God. For no one understands, but he in the Spirit speaks mysteries. That's, that's what the Greek says. That's what we have, similar to what I just 
translated for you on the fly here, uh, in the text. Amen? We need someone to interpret for us what is said. So let's move on here. Now, uh, verses 6 through 12. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Uh, Paul spoke in tongues. He was a tremendously gifted man. He could heal. He could speak in tongues. He could raise the dead. Wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. But when he comes to Corinth speaking in tongues to the people there, how will they be benefited? Answer, they won't be. Because they won't understand what he's saying. What would they get out of it? Nothing. Unless he spoke to God, spoke to them in a language they understood. You know, a flute or a harp or any other kind of musical instrument uh, that makes unintelligible noise rather than music doesn't bless anybody. Any of you all, any of you all ever heard anybody learning to play an instrument. Raise your hand. Okay. Especially stringed instruments. Uh, double reed instruments. No one ever learned to play that. Um, but, uh, you know, double reed instruments, stringed instruments, you know, there's all kinds of squeaks and squawks and screeches, and it's not music. It might be music somewhere, but it's not music to most people. And in the same way, armies in Paul's day, did, and, and we did this actually up until relatively recent times, up until World War I, there were still buglers that were attached to army units all over the world. And they did formations and they gave orders with a bugle because it could be heard over the sounds of battle. And so you would play the notes. In fact, in some places, I think they still do this. You know, they play Reveille in the morning. You know, time to get up, right? And then at night, you play Day is Done, Gone the Sun, right? You play taps at night. And, but you, during the day, would have used a bugle to tell everybody what they were to do. So they got used to, during drills, knowing what to do. But what if you have a beginning bugler? And he just is able to kind of hoot around on the thing. And the call that is given is obscure. All of a sudden, you're going to be in a problem because nobody's going to know what it means. And Paul is saying, look, it's the same thing if you're speaking a language foreign to your fellow churchmen. Nobody knows how to respond or what to do with that. And uh, there might be a lot of languages in the world, but they, and they all mean something, but none of them mean anything to me if I'm not a speaker of that language. In fact, 
Paul says that the person who speaks in another language to me will be a foreigner to me. Uh, the word foreigner in the ESV is literally the word barbarian. And it's a, in Greek, it's an onomatopoetic word. Now, that's a big word that means a word that sounds like what it describes. So what does a bee do? It buzzes, right? And, and in the same way, in the, to the Greek, everybody who was not a Greek speaker sounded, their words sounded like bar, bar, bar to their ear. And so they call those people barbaros, barbarians, how we would render that. And, and so, you know, as an example, Japanese sounds like gibberish if your native tongue is Russian, and English sounds like babbling if you speak Mandarin. Uh, I have a sister that lives in China. She's, she has three kids. Uh, they are um, serving the Lord over there, she and her husband. Um, and, and we have joked with my brother-in-law, who's Chinese, about what English sounds like to Chinese speakers and what Chinese sounds like to English speakers. And we were like, yeah, to us, Chinese sounds like ding, dang, dong, dong, ha. You know, and he's like, that's what you think we sound like? And we're like, yes. And he's like, well, let me tell you what you sound like. You know, and he'll do, he'll do that uh, for us. And we laugh. But it all sounds like gibberish if you don't speak the language. And so the point being emphasized is that in contrast to the Corinthians and their love, love of tongues, it would be better that they would prophesy. Because people need to hear from God. Amen? They don't need me to be exalted. They need Jesus to be exalted. And that happens through the words of the prophet. And they don't just need to see demonstrations of God's power. They need to hear his word. And so the Israelites, as you remember, they saw the plagues and they saw the smoke and fire on Sinai. They saw the, the quail come in from the desert. They saw the waters part. They saw all this stuff. But they didn't become God's people until he spoke his word to them and gave a covenant to them in words they could understand. And that's Paul's point in verse 12, that if you want to see the spirit really being demonstrated, really being manifested, then strive to do what builds up the body of Christ. Because that... is the best demonstration of the Spirit's power. You want to see something really miraculous? See a community of people who all love and serve one another, is what he's saying. That the Spirit's miraculous power comes not in visible miracles, but in, in unobvious miracles of a group of people with nothing in common who nevertheless come together to worship God and are unified in their love and service to one another. Amen? That would be a miraculous thing if that's what the church always looked like. Now, how should we then live? Well, first of all, love means seeking other people's good, not the satisfaction of my selfish desires. Let me repeat that. Love means seeking others' good, not the satisfaction of my selfish desires. I don't know about you, 
Uh, this came out again this week, you know, another critique from somebody of the evangelical church. And, and I believe that there, there are things that obviously the evangelical church needs to fix. For one thing, we're not nearly mission-minded enough in terms of if we really do believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation from sin, death, and hell, then we ought to be on fire to share it. You can make critiques. It's not that the church is immune from critique. But I personally am sick to death of hearing people say, well, you need to conform to my desires, what I think is good and right and moral. And you need to adapt to the current generation in a different way. Because here's the thing. I'm not against the church speaking the language of the people to whom that they are trying to reach. Amen? That's what this passage is about. I'm not against that. We do need to speak God's word in a way that can be received by the culture to which we're bringing it. But when people, especially those of us in the church, say, meet my desires, aren't we simply being selfish? Aren't we going back to Toby Keith and singing along with him? My, me, my, what I think, what I want, what I see. Oh, I like talking about you usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. Right? Uh, that attitude is not beneficial to the church. That's not to say there's no place in the church for seeking help for your needs. Amen? That's part of why we're here, is to serve and love one another. But it is to say the church does not exist for me. That I am not the center. That, that each of you, none of you is the center. That Jesus Christ is at the center of the church. And I exist, insofar as I exist as part of the church, I exist for the church, not the other way around. That Jesus might be glorified and that I might grow up out of some of my selfish desires and desire to serve instead my brothers and sisters with my spiritual gift and to become a person who is much less concerned about me. That we might say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. That love is about serving and seeking other people's good, not about satisfying what I want. The other thing is this, that the words of the prophets are meant to build up and encourage and console, but they'll only do that if we have ears to hear. Amen? I, I, I ask you this morning as, we, as I stood up here to, for the sermon, if you came hungry... To hear the Lord Jesus speak through his word. You know, Jesus says repeatedly, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the sense is not just that, that the word would be something that we listen to or even that we read, but that it would be something that we would obey. I'll remember this as long as I live. Howard Hendricks, a professor of mine at seminary, with the Lord now, where I'm, I'll assure you he has a great reward. He taught generations of men and women 
to read and understand and interpret the scriptures. And he would stand up in front of us and he would do Mr. Magoo imitations and so forth. But one of the things that he would say over and over and over and over and over and over again <laughs> is that he said, he said, men and women, the goal of Bible study is transformation. 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 Amen? That we are not coming to open this book so that we might all be smarter sinners. But that we might pursue obedience to the scriptures. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you have ears to hear, hear. It's what John means when he says, he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. God's Word will only build up and encourage and comfort us when we are willing to listen and obey what it says. And only when we come with the desire to meet Jesus there and obey it, does the Spirit use it to build us up in maturity, to encourage us and challenge us and comfort us. So, one last question. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit says through the prophets to the church? Let's pray, and then we'll take communion. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing your church with the words of the prophets that are written in language we can understand. Father, we thank you for those who have labored in the work of interpretation, making the word of God clear that even if we are not a speaker or a reader of Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, that we can open up the word of God and read the words of the prophets, which are the words of God in our own language and be understood and be challenged and built up and encouraged by the word. Father, we pray that in the exercise of our spiritual gifts, whatever they are, whether they are spectacularly supernatural, whether they are uh, more ordinary and pedestrian, whether we feel that our gift is great, whether we feel our gift is small, Father, may we use them to serve and love one another and to magnify Jesus Christ, that the body of Christ might be built up and that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.